to 1 John chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 6 through 21. Our text today will be verses 13 through 17, the second to last message, Lord willing, of the book. Only one more to go. I'm sorry. 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. And to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the encouragements we have been getting out of it as we go through 1 John. And as we come now to John's final words of encouragement to us, and we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts so we could receive these things and understand these things be enriched by them and encouraged by them, that we might, Lord, glorify you greatly in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 13 down through verse 17, we have a brief little summary of part of the book. Why did he write the book? I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance of our salvation to the child of God is not just something that's desirable. It is something that's 
possible, and it is something that is provided to us by God. Whenever I think of our blessed assurance of salvation, the first passage that comes to my mind is always Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to read a fairly long section of that because I want us to think about how this applies to our salvation and our assurance of it. We have confidence because it is the work of God. We have confidence because he has set it down in stone. I'll start in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before he made the world, he had already decided we would be born and that we would be born again. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So that was the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So he had planned all of this before the foundation of the world was laid, but it was to be unveiled in the fullness of time. And note, though, that it was according to his purpose, according to his will. He planned to unite all things to him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice that. That is where the great assurance comes from. He has planned for us from the before the foundation of the world to be redeemed, to be adopted as his sons, to become children of God. And he works out all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What a wonderful encouragement of God's mighty power in his plan. He has planned it from the beginning. He has promised that he will work all things according to the counsel of his own will. He has started it. He will finish it. Which is why Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, that I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else but all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself promised, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You know, this great assurance that God has given us is there, it is real, it is a promise, it is certain. Those who belong to God, those who God decided from the beginning, before he created the world, 
that he would give to his son. He will cause them to come to him and Christ will never cast them out because God will work everything out according to his own purpose. Now, some go through their whole life as a Christian not understanding the assurance of salvation that we have here in John talked about, the assurance that we should have according to Scripture. They have the daisy model. God loves me, he loves me not. They think, oh, I sinned today, God no longer loves me, I could go to hell if I die. Oh, God loves me again because I've repented. They don't understand the certainty of God's love. They think God is as fickle as they are. When they, talk, when they hear somebody talk about the assurance, the blessed assurance of salvation, all they think about in their mind is the carnal security the godless hold on to. They think of the certainty of the Pharisees. But I want you to think about this. I want those people to think about this. If God did not expect us to have assurance of salvation, why does John here say, I write these things to you, I write this entire book to you, so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life? If he didn't write, if we can't know, why does he say that he wrote this so that we will know? Is God a liar? Of course not. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. He wants us to have that confidence. If it's wrong to get that confidence, then why would he devote an entire book of the Bible to it? Now, if carnal security is a big problem, there are many people who are hypocrites and godless who think they're going to heaven and have absolute confidence in that. In this book... I think John addresses that very well. He has given us his tests. He has given us three main tests in the book. The first one is Christ-likeness. And we've gone over this a number of times as we've been through the book. If we know God, then we will love God and we will love him sincerely and we will keep his commandments. We will walk in the light as he is in the light. We will walk as Jesus walked. We will keep his commandments, and his commandments will be a joy, not a burden. We will desire to do what God wants us to do. That commandment we was mostly, that test was mostly, most clearly found in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Obedience by their fruits shall you know them. A major teaching in this book, a major teaching in Christ's ministry as well. It's not carnal security. You look at your life. If you're living a life of sin, the one who continues in sin does not know God. He's very explicit in the book. There are tests that help you. If you hate your sin and are repentant of your sin and seeking Christ and seeking to walk as Christ walked, then you can have hope. But if you love your sin and walk in your sin and don't want to give it up, then you don't have that hope. The second great test found primarily in chapter 2, verse 18 to 27, but sprinkled also throughout the book, is the test of worldliness. 
If the love of the Father is in us, we will love him and his kingdom, and we will not love the world or the things of the world. As we will see next week, the world lies in the power of the evil one. It is not part of God's kingdom. It is filled with the sin and the corruption that came from man and comes from the devil, comes from man's sin. And if you love the world, then you set yourself up as an enemy of God, and you don't know God. And so it is the second great test. Do you love God and his kingdom, or do you love the world? It's not a matter of carnal security. Look at yourself, look at your life, look at ourself, look at our life, and know If we do not love the world, but we love God, if we are willing to set aside the things of this world, the treasures of this world, the life that others want, the the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, if we can set those aside and focus on the kingdom of heaven, then we can have that confidence and that assurance of salvation. And the other test found in Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, was the test of brotherly love, also sprinkled throughout the whole book. Do we love our brother? If we think we love God and we don't love our brother, then obviously we're deluding ourselves. If our brother has been being remade in the image of God and we don't find that attractive, then how could we possibly be finding God attractive, John says. We couldn't love God who we don't see if we can't love our brother who's being remade in the image of God who we can see. And so if we aren't loving our brother in deed and in truth, not just in empty words, then it's proof that we don't love God. And if we don't love God, then we don't know God. And we don't abide in God. And we don't have this salvation that he's talking about. We don't have eternal life. And so these three tests, Christ-likeness, brotherly love, and worldliness really show us whether or not we are walking with God, whether we abide in him. Help us to see whether we walk in the light as he is in the light, whether we have fellowship with one another, whether the blood of Jesus, his son, has really cleansed us from all of our sins. 1 John 1, 7. Of course, if we are walking in the light, if we are with God, if we are passing these tests, we are not doing it perfectly. We should know that. John has pointed that out. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And again, in First uh, John 1, 8 and verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. If we... We have all sinned, and we all continue to sin. If we deny that, we're basically calling God a liar. But we know that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. Chapter 2, verse 6. And yet we know that he appeared to take away our sins. And in him there was no sin. So whoever abides in him should not keep on sinning. And no one who abides in him will keep on sinning. And the one who abides in him, one who says he abides in him but keeps on sinning, has neither seen him or known him. First John three five through eight or five through six. 
We're called really to turn away from our sin because that's the proof that we're not living for it anymore. If we live in our sins, then we do not know God. If we turn away from our sins day by day, then we are going to grow in our faith. And that's what we should be seeing, that daily progress in our life as we turn away from these sins. John makes that call here in 1 John chapter 3 because of who we, the believer, are that we have received and what we have received in Christ that we should start off. We we should understand how he has started off that chapter. We have that kind of, we see what kind of love the Father has given us that we're being called the children of God. And so we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is because it doesn't know him. We are God's children now, and what we have has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Paul takes that idea a little further. He says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So that degree, from one degree to another, we are being transformed. More and more we should bear God's image, Christ's image in our life. We should be more like him each day, continually. (coughs) Excuse me. That transformation is not yet complete, but it will be one day. As John says, It isn't complete now, but we will be like him when he appears. And if we think that transformation is complete now, we're a fool. But if we're not being transformed and becoming more like him, we're also a fool. We're not knowing him. And this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Chapter 4, verse 10. All we have and all that we're going to become has come through the love of God and from him sending his son to die for us, to die for our sins. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, we should arm ourselves with the same thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past has sufficed for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. With respect to these things, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. First Peter 4, 1 through 5. Now God's love that he has given to us, will transform us. He has sent his son to die for us, and because he has sent his son to die for us, we should live for him. And so we are called to examine ourselves and see whether we are in the faith. Test ourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test? 2 Corinthians 13.5 Is Christ in you? 
Whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God, the love God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And so that is the test. Do we really love God? If we love God, then we are living for God. We are being transformed into the image of his son. And those three tests in particular, the obedience, the love for our brother, the hatred for the world, the separation from the world and loving the kingdom of God, those will show us that we really are saved and will give us that that assurance of salvation that our confession of Christ is a true profession of Christ and that we really have eternal life. And there's a result of that. Not just that we have that comfort in our heart and in our life that we can face troubles, that we can face trials, that we can face death, knowing that we will be with him. But as we see in verse 14 and 15, we have that assurance results in confidence. Not just confidence in eternity, but confidence in today. Confidence in our ability to approach the throne of grace. Our Heavenly Father loves us and encourages us to ask him to take care of us, to ask for our needs. Jesus teaches us this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who will ask him? Matthew 7, 7-11. We are encouraged to ask, to seek, to knock, to come to God seeking what we need from him in prayer. The Christian should spend much time in prayer, not just for ourselves, but for those around us, for our brothers, for our sisters, for the world, for our leaders, for everyone. Our confidence isn't just for our salvation. It's not just for our return, which we learn about in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. For you know if he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We know, but it's also for the here and now. Approaching God's throne in prayer. We talked about that back in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God that whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We looked at that just a few weeks back, a month back. That we can have confidence through our obedience to approach God. And we have this great privilege as his sons, as being knowing that we are his sons, as having passed these tests, seeing his spirit in our life, the effect of his spirit, the transformation of our life. 
seeing the image of Christ more and more in our own life as we gaze into his word and see our love for it and our obedience to it. This great privilege as sons is ours, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who abide in him, I guess we could say, are his believers. For we did not receive a spirit of slavery back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Romans 8, 14 through 17. And we can cry, Abba, Father. I remember a Hebrew scholar once telling me that Abba is the intimate form of Father. It's like Daddy. You know, it's, it shows that we are very close to God and we can address Him most informally and intimately. And Jesus Himself does that in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? He cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14:36. Note that he said, not what I will, but what you will. Just as John has said here in our passage today, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In verse 14. This is one of the central requirements in prayer that sometimes gets omitted or gets overlooked. When we looked at Jesus' prayer, it was not answered in the way he asked. The cup was not removed from him. But it was not a failed prayer because he said, not as I will, but as you will. The prayer, however, was holy, righteous, and just thing to pray for. He was praying not to be murdered, not to be tortured. He was praying not to be humiliated. He was praying not to be punished for another person's sins. There's nothing wrong with anything he prayed for. It was all good. It was all just. It was all holy. It was all righteous. All of the content of his prayer was good. He didn't ask wrongly as we often do. Remember James' condemnation. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. James 4, 3 and 4. No one could find fault with that prayer. No one could find fault with his faith. Remember, James also condemns the faithless. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James 1, 6 through 8. Remember first that without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11.6 The doubter is a man of two hearts, two minds, two masters. It's a play on words in the Greek, contrasting God being generous or having a single mind and the man asking with two minds or two hearts it should remind us of Jesus' teaching that no one can serve two masters. 
For either you'll hate one or love the other, and be devoted to one and despise the other, Matthew 6.24. Jesus, however, was fully devoted to God. He wasn't asking wrongly. He wasn't of two minds, one for God's glory, one for himself. The issue is simply that God works out all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 that we read earlier. And it was his will, not the will of others, that was the deciding factor in what would happen, even in the answering of his prayers, just as in this example. It was his will that Jesus be a propitiation for our sins. That required that Jesus die on the cross for our sins, that all those horrible things happened to him. And his prayer that it not happen, well, it was a righteous prayer. He was giving us an example that even a righteous prayer may not be answered that way, but it's still got a right answer. The answer was God's will be done. People have asked me, What's the use in praying if God's going to do what he wants instead of what I want? Well, they don't always ask it quite that bluntly, but that's really what they ask. Why should I bother to pray if God has worked out things his way and not my way? Now, there are a couple of things we can say to that, a couple of encouragements. The first is we pray because he told us to. Ask, seek, knock, remember? He has said he will give it to us. And what did James say? What causes quarrels amongst you and what causes fights amongst you? It's not this. Your passions war among you. You desire you don't have, so you murder, you covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're adulterous people. James 4, 1 through 4. God knows everything. He knew it all before he planned it out. He knew it all before the foundation of the world, everything that would happen, everything that we would do. He knew your heart. He knew our heart. He knew whether we would pray in faith or not. And that's part of his plan, which is why he can say you do not have because you do not ask. Just because he had planned not to give it to you, it may be because you did not ask. That may be why. Or because you planned, he knew that you would ask, not for him and for his kingdom and for his glory, but you would be asking for yourself. So that's the first one. God, in his eternal wisdom, has all the knowledge of what's going to happen. He knew what you would ask before you asked it. He knew what you would want before you asked it. And he knew whether you would ask it or not. And he knew whether you would ask it rightly or not. And that's part of his plan. So you should ask because he told you to ask. Second, you got to ask yourself, is what you want always for the best? Is it for God's glory? Are you really praying, hallowed be your name? Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9. Are we praying for God's kingdom? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Matthew 6.10. Is it for obedience to his revealed will? Are we not asking wrongly? Defended on our passions. Give us this day our daily bread. Matthew 6.11. Is it for our good and the good of our brothers? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Verse 12. Is it for greater holiness? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 13. Are we really praying the way we're supposed to be praying? Are we confident that what we pray for is better than what God has planned? Are we wiser than God? Are we more knowledgeable than God, more holy than God, more righteous than God? If not, shouldn't we really think about what he has promised? We know that for those who are loved by God, who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. Romans 8.28 If all things work together for good by him, by his will, shouldn't we understand that? Shouldn't we add then to our prayer saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done as Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we ask according to his will, we have confidence, John says, that he hears us and we'll have what we ask for. And if we say, not my will, but your will be done, then we know we will get what is right, even if it's not quite what we want. We know what we will get what God wants. And it's worth doing it that way. Now he goes on in 16 and 17 to give us an example of something we should pray for. And this is where the trouble again comes. John has a number of very difficult things in his book of 1 John. We see praying for the sons of God. It's really an example of brotherly love. But we have to pray within limits, and that's where the problem comes up. Uh, one of the great tests is brotherly love, and this is a demonstration for it. When we see our brother sin, what happens? Well, there's discipline, there's correction, there's potentially even even death. The person we think is a brother Maybe not the brother that we think he is because of his sin. He may be found to be not a brother. But if we think he's our brother, we need to love him. And we aren't loving him if we say, what, am I my brother's keeper? Do I need to worry about him? Let him sin and be gone and I don't have to trouble myself. I don't have to be bothered by it. Allow them to go off in sin and not repent is not love. You remember my my story about the person, the child who says, I can fly and wants to jump off the roof. Do we love them by taking them to the Empire State Building and say, have at it? Or do we love them by telling them, stop that, you're stupid. You know, when we see our brother sin, we love them by telling them, you're an idiot, you're going to die. Stop that. Repent. We must do it in love and in truth. Remember, James gives a similar instruction in his book. 
but he's doing it not with prayer, but in action. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James 5:19 through 20. Someone wanders from the truth of God's word after the heretical teachers and false prophets that John has warned us about. And someone brings them back to the true faith. Then they can be kept from a world of hurt. And also, if they don't know God, they can come to know God. through The, the Spirit can use that to bring them the knowledge of God and the saving knowledge and save their life. Well, here the goal is the same. Really, it's not about seeing them punished, condemned. It's not about lording it over them or puffing ourselves up, but about restoring them to life through God by praying for them, praying for their repentance, praying for their soul, praying for wisdom and knowledge and understanding in the Spirit. But what is this we're not to pray for? He puts a limit on this. Now, if you see your brother sin, pray for that, but not about sins that lead to death. What is, actually it's not plural, it's singular. What is the sin that leads to death? I'm sure his original hearers knew exactly what he was talking about, but since his original hearers, people have been quite struggling with what to say. What does it mean? They haven't quite figured it out. There are a number of options given. First, the facts. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, all sin leads to death, no matter how great or small. Our shorter catechism, question number 84, says that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. In the context here, that death is set against the eternal life of verse 13. It's a spiritual death. We're not talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death that sin brings. Now, for the options people have given, some have considered it to be any of the capital crimes of the Old Testament. They led to death, physical death. But that doesn't really seem to work because those are the very sins that are talked about over and over again in the New Testament that people repent of. And, you know, that's the list of sins that such were some of you. All of them were capital crimes. Another one that they bring up is the Old Testament distinction between sins of ignorance, which you could, you accidentally did something, or you sinned not knowingly and you found out about it later, or you sinned not knowing something had happened, and you become aware of it and you realize you had violated particularly the ceremonial law unknowingly. And those could be cleansed by sacrifice, but presumptuous sins where you willingly went off and did a sin could not be repented of or could not be covered by a sacrifice. And some people take that to be the meaning. And that was carried over into the early New Testament church and kind of evolved over time into gross sins, which you couldn't repent of, and minor sins, which you could, and gave rise to the Roman Catholic religious view of mortal sins and venial sins. But generally, that's not a biblical idea. And there's 
what it evolved into. And again, the Old Testament concept in the New Testament, those are sins which, you know, particularly Paul says, and such were some of you. Those are sins that were willingly, deliberately committed, knowing they were sinful. Paul himself talks about his covetousness. It wasn't until I read the law that I knew it was sin, and then I wanted to do it more. That would be a deliberate sin, and he's repented of that and covered. So that's probably not what's in mind here. Uh, Many take it to be apostasy. Not a specific sin, even not backsliding, but a total and final apostasy, a denial that Jesus is the Christ, or a renunciation of the Christian faith. Again, not necessarily fitting well, not clear. The fourth and final one, which I think is probably most likely, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. I won't read all of it. But you remember a demon-oppressed man came was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, and he spoke, and he saw the people who were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David, the, the Messiah? And the Pharisees heard it and said, Oh, no, 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 this is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. So they saw a mighty miracle that Jesus said was committed, done by the Holy Spirit in the name of God, and they said, No, it was the prince of demons, Satan. They called him Beelzebul. And Jesus goes on to explain to them the foolishness of their their complaint. (coughs) And in verse 21, he says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. And people understand that. Some understand that to be apostasy, but in context, the understanding would be seeing the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit in doing something like a healing, driving out a demon and healing a man who's blind and deaf so he can see and hear, and saying, no, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's Satan. And that that was unforgivable. Now, the point is, you might object, how can a brother commit a sin that leads to eternal damnation? Well, we're not called to pray for those sins. No, we're prayed for the brother, called to pray for the brother who sins and whose sin does not lead to death. We're not called to pray about the sin that leads to death, which I don't believe could be committed by a brother but only by a reprobate person, by a person who can't be saved in the first place. So it's just a minor little thing he's put in here that people get hung up on. We're called to pray for our brother when he sins, not for people who sin against the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit or whatever the the sin that leads to death is, but pray for our brother in his redemption, his recovery, his turning away from sin, that he might recover and turn back to God. So we should pray that God would show our brother, as he shows us, 
The sins we've committed, because if we, we know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. We pray as Jesus did, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. We pray that they and we would abide in God, turning from our sin, because whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So what we're praying for in this example is that our brother would be repentant of his sins and turn back to God and walk in the light with us and with God, something that we are also being called to do. So it's fairly straightforward, and the little thing not to pray about is not to be hung up on and praying for the wicked who have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and they're not going to be saved in the first place. And so we have this passage, the purpose of the book, the assurance of our salvation, that we know that we belong to God, that we know we belong to him because John has given us these tests, that we walk in obedience more and more, being transformed in the likeness of Christ, that we love our brother because we see in our brother the image of God, that we turn away from the world and the love of the world to God. And that assurance gives us assurance also not of salvation only, but of being able to approach God in prayer. And we pray, as John keeps saying, every time there's something about love, love also our brother. And we love our brother by praying for him. And let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragements of your word. Pray, Lord, that you would bless us now as we think about the things that we have thought today and heard today. Lift up our hearts in them that we would be drawn near to you, that we would have confidence in our faith, that we would examine our hearts and see if we do pass the test and see the areas where we need to change our life and be more transformed into the image of your Son. See the things we need to repent of and correct in our life. And see those, Lord, when we do see our brother in sin clearly, that we would not be negligent and leave him to die, but seek his good by calling him also to repentance, both Indeed, and in prayer, pray for your enlightenment of his heart. Pray for him to know his sin, to know that it is sin, to turn from it. And as we also would know our sin, know that it is sin and turn from it and receive forgiveness from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.